I wanted to uh, take some time over the next few weeks to some reflections um, that come out of what I've been thinking about and praying about while I've been off for the last couple of months. So first of all, I need to say thank you. Thank you for giving me and uh, half of Heather a chance to have a break uh, for a couple of months and uh, to get away and to pray and to talk to people, to visit some other churches and to uh, spend time uh, resting and uh, waiting on Jesus. And it's been really productive and uh, helpful for us and hopefully going to be helpful for the church as well as we uh, move on. I, I will confess that as I was building up to coming back, oh, I haven't started going, it won't work if I don't press go. As I was building up to coming back, I was oscillating between uh, panic about the work that I would need to do and fear because I'd heard such good things about what had happened when I was away. Uh, one, uh, one lovely member of the church who I absolutely adore uh, uh, sent us a text when my brother uh, preached saying, it's the best sermon I've ever heard. <laughs> I was like, wow, I'm so pleased. <laughs> Thanks, Amy. <laughs> no, no, no. I passed it on to him. That's great. I've, I think, I think I've, I've preached somewhere in the region of 220 sermons, so maybe the 221st is the charm. I don't know. Uh, it's been really, really humbling uh, to uh, step away and realize that you're not needed in the way that you've perhaps feared that you were, which is actually really good. It's part of the, part of the reason uh, that uh, pastors take sabbaticals is for themselves, but also because it stops us taking all the oxygen in the church, gives other people a chance to breathe and to, to discover the gifts that God has given them and to care for one another. And uh, I'm not going to mention individuals because... Um, I will always forget someone, but if you've contributed to the way the services have been led or to pastoral care or to any of the activities of the church for the last two months, then um, I really want to say a big thank you, and I've heard that you've done an amazing job, and uh, I'm not intending to take back any responsibility from you, basically. So uh, I'll be developing that with the deacons a little bit, but um, I really want to encourage us to grow in the areas that God has been using us and not to think, well, that was for two months and I blessed people then and now, thank goodness, Heather and Phil are back and I can hand it over to them again. Actually, no, God wants to use you to bless others. Uh, he wants to use you, not, not me. Uh, and uh, that will free me up to do other things and it will free you up to be the uh, wonderful agent and child of grace that God wants you to be. There was... Uh, a few things that I wanted to share that I've been thinking about. Um, one of them is, uh, in fact, two of them come out of uh, readings that God has sort of slapped me around the face with. Um, part of uh, being away and stopping work all of a sudden, especially after your busiest time of the year at Christmas, is that you feel a little bit lost. You sort of stop work and then think, well, what am I supposed to do now? And uh, Heather and I uh, went away to a conference in Liverpool for church leaders uh, run by the New Ground Network of Churches that we're sort of loosely uh, working with. And uh, they run these conferences every year, and it's a really, really great time. It's one of the best things they do, actually, to support other leaders and, and help each other and pray together and worship together. And as, I was, as we were singing worship one day, someone stood up and they shared a, a prophecy and they read a scripture from 1 Peter, uh, and uh, 1 Peter uh, 1, verses 3 to 9. And I thought, wow, I, I don't think I've really uh, spent any time reflecting on that uh, passage. I have a theory that books at the back of the Bible get disproportionately less time 
because by the time you reach there, everyone's knackered and they don't want to read anything else. So people spend a lot of time in the Gospels, then they spend a lot of time on Romans, and then gradually it gets less and less as you get further and further through. Until by the time you get to 3 John, I would challenge anyone to tell me what is in 3 John. Anyway, so this guy brought, uh, opened the book of 1 Peter, and he started reading from 1 Peter 1. And I thought it was a really interesting passage, and I wrote it down because I thought I want to spend some time meditating on this passage. I want to spend some time thinking about it and praying about it. And then I went away, as you do, and the next week I was up in Cambridge in, uh, staying in Trinity. And uh, again, I thought, well, I'm here now, what am I supposed to do? And I thought, well, what, uh, what pastors should do is go to the morning prayer meeting. So I went to the chapel, to the prayer meeting in Trinity, which I'm ashamed to say I never went to when I was a student, literally not once. But anyway, now I went along. And I was sat there, and we all sat in this circle. And no one was leading and they were sort of looking around awkwardly at each other. And they said, where's Jeff? His name wasn't Jeff, but whatever. Where's Jeff? He's never late. He's, he's the one who's supposed to have prepared something. They said, well, Jeff isn't coming. No one knows where he is. So uh, this chap sitting next to me said, well, I'm a curate who's just started at, um, uh, at one of the churches in uh, Cambridge. I'm preparing to preach on a sermon series. Why don't I just share one of the things I'm thinking about saying this Sunday? He said, I want you to turn, open your Bibles. I said, oh, this would be good. Uh, unexpected. Um, he said, I want you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter, and we want to look at chapter 1 and verses 3 to 9, and I'm sitting there thinking, goodness me, um, this guy wasn't even supposed to be in the building, let alone leading today, and yet he's referred to exactly the same passage. So I then took this away and started praying and meditating on it, and I think it's the most profoundly moving piece of scripture, one of the two most profoundly moving pieces of scripture that I've ever spent time looking at, and I want to share with you what I think it's saying now. At some point, everyone suffers. This is is the happy part of the talk. At some point, everyone suffers. Uh, Sometimes people suffer internally through mental pain or depression. I've been very open with you, and I'm going to continue to be very open with you because I want to give permission to people to say that this is how they're feeling, that I've had periods of anxiety and depression. I've Uh, needed counselling and received counselling and it's been helpful for me me in the past and it's actually being helpful for me at the moment. And uh, there is that kind of mental uh, struggle and suffering. Sometimes it's the circumstances of life cause us to suffer. Illness is the most obvious one of these. Or it might be the illness of a family member or a really difficult uh, time uh, that you're going through for whatever reason. You've lost your job or you've got a boss who's totally unreasonable. Or Tottenham are throwing it away again. It's an escalating scale of anxiety. (laughs) Sometimes it's because of the unkindness or harshness of others, particularly about faith. Not that, I mean, in this country up until uh, uh, now, we haven't really, uh, in recent times, faced any kind of state-sanctioned violence against Christians or anything, but there are... Uh, circumstances where people are unkind, they're cutting, they're unpleasant about faith. Actually, very often, that hides the fact that they're interested in Jesus, but they're embarrassed about it, so they're mean about him, and mean to someone who, who loves him. It might be a general anxiety. When I was in a curry house last night, uh, one of the guys said to me, what are you talking about tomorrow, then, Phil? You're going to talk about coronavirus. I said... Uh, I said, well, I'm planning on talking about the Bible. You know, that's sort of my job. Um, he said, oh, I thought you should talk about coronavirus. I said, well, that's an interesting Manesh. Maybe I'll mention it, right? 
I said, but I think people are more often worried about their immediate circumstances. That's a bigger actual risk to people than a kind of abstract virus. But we read about things, we hear about things, and you read words like pandemic and stuff, or it might be elections going on, or Brexit or something, and it makes you afraid. It makes us fear. It makes us anxious. And it starts to produce suffering, even where we're not actually physically suffering with it ourselves. The worry about it makes us start to suffer. Christians have always suffered in these ways, along with everyone else. And we need to know how to respond, where to look for hope, how to stay close to God even when we might feel that he isn't there. i name that for you. It's okay to experience doubt. You won't often hear pastors say that. I'm going to say that because everyone in the world experiences doubt about something at some stage. Right? There are uh, militant atheists. Richard Dawkins will be going through the woods. I absolutely guarantee it because it's a universal human condition. Going through the woods one day and he will encounter, I don't know, a frost-tipped uh, daffodil sprouting out from a rock. And there'll be a part of his heart that thinks, oh, maybe I'm wrong. Religious people experience doubt. Right? We have a saint, St. Thomas, first evangelized India. Universally and derogatorily known as Doubting Thomas. Actually, I'm so grateful that his mates, when they wrote the Gospels, included the bit about Doubting Thomas in there because there are times where we doubt. Actually, suffering can be one of the things that makes us doubt. There's no point denying it. Then you don't engage with it and you don't work through it. It's fine. It's just life. You read the Psalms, they're full of it. Wrestling with God, walking with God through hard times and learning how to lean on his grace even when everything else feels as if it's falling apart. I'm just going to read three bits from the Bible. I'm going to read from uh, Psalm 23 and uh, from uh, Matthew 5 and then uh, finally from 1 Peter 1. So you don't need to worry about turning to Psalm 23 and Matthew 5. You can if you want. Psalm 23 is on page 555. This is probably the most famous poem ever written. Famous song ever written. And it's one that we uh, tend to quote because we go, oh, it makes me feel good. And actually it's really bleak, so I'm going to ruin it for you now. As is my want. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guards me along right paths or paths of righteousness for his, own, for his name's sake. Here's where it starts to get dark. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, or in some translations, literally the, the valley of the shadow of death, might render it this way. Even though I walk down a path that is so bleak, it makes me feel like I want to die or that I'm going to die. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Again, ponder those words. What happens in darkness? What can't you see in darkness? What can't you do in darkness? I'm giving the answer away. See. Even though I can't see you, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. We might say, even when I am under threat, you can still bless me and provide for me. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. 
Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And it's good to read from the Gospels to see how this is rooted in the life of Jesus. So, we're going to turn to Matthew and uh, chapter 26. I'm going to read from verse 36. 36. 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. That word sorrow literally means I feel so sad, I feel like I could die. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell to his fa- well, fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it May this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. I'm just going to skip forward to verse 49 to 50. Judas, for those of you who don't know the story, spoiler alert, this is coming up at Easter. Jesus is betrayed, gets executed and rises from the dead. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. I, I draw that, I'm going to draw this out a little bit later, but I just made, put those two verses at the end because I wanted us to see how Jesus goes from being someone who's so sorry he feels like he could die to standing up and being able to kiss his betrayer, the man who is betraying the Son of God, And call him friend without malice or anger. It is possible to suffer and to suffer well. So finally then, let's let's bring up 1 Peter. And then we're going to keep this open. 1 Peter is right at the end of the Bible. Page 1217, if you're reading in one of the Bibles from the back. Written by Peter, I think, to uh, the churches that he supervised, roughly mid-AD 60. And he uh, was writing to those who had suffered unkindness, insults, harsh treatment. And he knew that soon uh, it would become full-blown state-sanctioned violence, right? So the, the persecutions of Nero are coming up soon. Peter knows that. So you can see as the letter goes on, he moves from dealing with unkindness and harshness through to being treated as if you've murdered someone just for following Jesus. And he's talking to them about how they can suffer and how they can suffer well and to encourage them to hope and to stay strong and to remain full of grace. So let's read. Verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth 
into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I always try and give a lunchtime summary. So if you're taking notes, this is what it is. This is... Uh, there so that you can go home and remember what the talk is about or if you have lunch with someone and they say what did you learn at church you could say to them he talked about coronavirus no you can you can say you can say we were learning we were thinking about how when we suffer and face hard times we can have hope by remembering that God is in control that he's working even when we can't see it and that he can bring about good even from our worst experiences To put it in a snappy summary, we learn about hope in hard times. Hope in hard times. I'm going to leave that on the uh, screen. And uh, hopefully you can see how we're progressing through it as I talk. So I'm going to draw three things out of what Peter says. He says an awful lot. I'm not going to in any way exhaust everything Peter says. He had a real gift for condensing enormous amount of uh, really deep thinking about God into very few words. Um, and uh, so it's worth going away and actually working through this yourself, like maybe one verse a day for a week, and just thinking, what is this telling me about Jesus and uh, my life? Because I'm, I'm just going to scratch the surface. But I want to draw out three things. First, focus on God. When we suffer, focus on God. Peter encourages them to suffer, to focus on God. He starts in a way which is totally incredible, really, in the true sense of that word, difficult to believe. I suppose when I sit down with someone who's suffering, my my first uh, uh, instinct is to put my arm around their shoulder and say, they're there, tell me all about it. Isn't it terrible? Peter's church is suffering. He's going to suffer in a major way. And what he begins by saying is, praise God, isn't God good? The first thing he says isn't there, there. The first thing he says is, praise Jesus. Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth. Isn't God good? Look at all the amazing stuff he's done for us. Now, why is Peter doing that? Why does he do that? I I want to suggest, actually, it's a really important insight into the way that we can suffer well, if I can put it that way. How even in the midst of pain and anguish and uh, doubt and despair, good can come from it and we can endure. Peter has recognised that it's tempting when we 
are in pain to drop our eyes, to look downwards at ourselves. You know, it's as if there's a kind of heavy weight on your shoulders and so your head droops and, and what can you see? Yourself. And, and I can only speak for myself and it might be that no one else feels like this but I suspect it's more generally true that when I find my life difficult, I very quickly come to focus on my circumstances. It's all you can come to think about. It starts to dominate one's thinking. If you talk to psychologists or psychiatrists, they'll talk about loops. That we get into loops in our thinking. And they become self-focused. Now, obviously there is something good about that. It's good to acknowledge how we're feeling. Right? If you're running a marathon... Let's say Elizabeth decided that she wanted to run a marathon. Okay? It's good for her to look down at her foot and think, I've got a broken foot. I need to see something true about myself because it it means that I should be resting, not running marathons. And it's good that she's got Steve there to say to her, Elizabeth, my love, are you off your head? You've got a broken foot. Take care of yourself. Right? We need a certain amount of self-awareness to know how we should respond. But if we're not careful, when we suffer, that becomes so out of proportion that it leads us into despair. Actually, it can lead to hardness and to a kind of self-trapping pride. That's kind of an odd, anecdote, odd adjective rather to describe sadness. But actually, sadness can become pride because you, can, you sort of nurse it and it becomes your identity. Peter encourages those who are suffering to lift their eyes from ourselves, lift our eyes from ourselves to God. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for he's done good things. And actually, this is rooted in truth. Everything we have comes from God. God made us. God sent Jesus to die for us. God raised Jesus for us. God found us. God gave us new birth. God gave us a new start. God is the one whom everything depended on in the first place. That feeling of despair, I can't manage, is true, but God. Or to put it another way, I really can't manage, but it was never about me in the first place. I never did it. I never made myself. I never created myself. I never conceived myself. I never grew myself. I never saved myself. I never died for myself. But God. It was always about God, the all-powerful and all-loving one. It never depended upon me. And actually, you could, well, hopefully, one can start to see how lifting one's eyes is the start of hope. In hard times of suffering, lifting one's eyes is the start of hope. When we are weak, we can recall that God is strong enough to hold us and to keep us. That's what Peter says. You're shielded by God's power. You might feel like you can't cope, but he can. Lift your eyes. When we're dry and filled with doubt... We can recall what God has done. Actually, I want to say that. If you're someone who's struggling with doubt this morning, bless you. You're very welcome here. You are amongst friends. In fact, as a human being, you're experiencing a universal human experience. 
I really encourage you to go and check out the, the, the factual foundations of your faith again. God really did raise Jesus Christ from the dead. Really did. We recall that it never depended upon us in the first place. When we despair of God's love for us, we recall what he's already done for us and thank him for it. And our eyes start to get lifted and we start to hope. There's a psalm, Psalm 123. It says, where does my help come from? My help comes from the hills. Look up. Praise be to the Lord and Father of our, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So first of all, focus on God in suffering. Secondly, doubt your eyes. We need to doubt our eyes. You know, human beings are so deluded. You're not, I am. We think all we can see in front of us is, what's all, is all that's there. And our eyes get narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower till all we can see is this tiny little bit and we're like, but this is the whole world and this is all that's going on and this is all that's real and this is all that's happening. And you're like, but doubt your eyes. You can't see everything. So Peter comforts them. He comforts them with a reminder that God is preparing an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you that is ready to be revealed in the last time. What, particularly when we're in pain, what we see right now, what we feel right now, is not a good or truthful account of what is really happening, or what, re- what will really happen. A perfect example of this, um, we were in the forest yesterday, walking through the forest, and uh, Abby, bless her, fell over into a, a very small prickly bush. But she's a very small, delicate girl, when she's not charging headlong at people. And... You know, she came back, she was howling, she was disconsolate. There was a, there was a thorn in her, fin- her finger. I mean, not a big thorn. Very, very small. Very, 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 very small. So small, you wouldn't even notice it. All she could think about was this thorn in her finger. She was convinced that the thorn would be there forever, that she would be in pain forever. It had absorbed her whole world. She was suffering and nothing would ever be right again. And what she didn't know is that her daddy was preparing a plan to get tweezers out and remove the thorn from her finger and that it would be fixed. But because she couldn't, she couldn't see it. She just couldn't see it. Don't trust your eyes. What we see right now, what we feel right now, is, a good, is not always a good or truthful account of what's really happening. I'll give you three illustrations of this. You get this on a global level. So there's a kind of popular media narrative uh, that uh, religion globally is declining. The world is moving past religion. Every time they do a survey and uh, Pew, the research group which specializes in global uh, intellectual trends, specialized on this, guess what? Religion as a proportion of global population and in absolute terms is, is increasing astronomically. So much so that they predict that by 2050 there will be more people in the world who are religious now and a bigger proportion of the world and a bigger proportion of them will be Christians. Right? I literally, I literally read, a, uh, read an article on the BBC website which talked about the decline of, global decline of Christianity and I said, but, you, but the, every time they do statistics on this, they find that Christianity is growing astronomically. But the guy who's reporting for the BBC just assumes that because he doesn't know any Christians, 
There aren't any Christians, right? Christianity remains the single biggest and will continue to be the single biggest and a bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger belief system in the world. The one belief system that is shrinking? Atheism. As a proportion of the global population and in absolute terms, it's shrinking, right? You would not imagine that, right? If you get your news, it's on a global scale. I'm not criticizing anybody. I'm just saying you can't, what you see is not what's real, right? It's, 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 it's not what's real. Right? It, it's driven by the false assumptions. The, the way, by the way, that Christianity hasn't died out when 100 years ago everyone was predicting it would be dead is that it turned out that China, that everyone assumed was not Christian at all, was about to become the largest Christian country in the world. But no one could see it, so they didn't believe it. And then suddenly, China started to open up its borders and people are flipping, heck, there are churches everywhere. It must be so annoying to constantly be the enemy of Jesus. And you're like, but we, we literally nailed him to a tree and then we buried him into a tomb and now there are Christians everywhere. But we killed you once. Well, you're the Emperor Nero. You think, well, it's fine, I'll just burn them all. We'll burn them all, we'll stick them in candles and they'll be burnt. It's awful, ghastly. It's the other function of 1 Peter. You might think that you've got it bad. No one's about to burn you as a candle. I'm quite serious. We, we killed all of you, and now there are so many of you, you're taking over the empire. It goes all the way through until you get to the mid-20th century, and there's some sociologist sitting in Harvard saying, I've written about how this religion is dying out, and there are more and more people following it. What is wrong with you people? Why won't you go away? And Peter's wanted to say, because our God is preparing an inheritance for us that is imperishable, cannot fade, cannot be taken away, cannot be broken down, and it will be revealed in the last day. You can't see it, but he's doing it. And every so often, you see eruptions of this. I was talking to an Anglican friend of mine um, in Blackpool. Sorry, I'm getting a bit enthusiastic. It's because I haven't preached for three months. <laughs> Two months. Got to get it off my chest. <laughs> I went up and talked to him. I talked to Tom. He's a lovely guy. Uh, Anglican uh, curate. He's constantly trying to persuade me to become an Anglican. Uh, actually, by the end of it, he's trying to persuade me to become an Eastern Rite Catholic. But anyway. Um, <laughs> they, uh, I love my wife too much. They, they, he's, I said to him, Tom... Because he's, he's an evangelical. But if I said, Tom, there are members in your church, people who are fairly senior in your church, who hate you, right? And who actually don't really seem to believe that Christianity is true. I don't really quite understand one of the reasons why I can't become an Anglican. I don't really quite get how you guys cope. I'm not being critical. I'm saying, how do you cope emotionally? He said to me, Phil, in, in the year before the evangelical revival started, the 18th century Wesleyan Whitfield revival that led to uh, the third largest religious movement in the world, right? Transform the country is angrily uh, denounced by uh, communist historians as avoiding a revolution that would have brought in communism. You know, the most single, one of the two or three most influential events in English history. Revolutionized church attendance. He said, do you know how many people took communion the year before that revival started at St. Paul's Cathedral? At Easter, right, the highest day in the church calendar. He said six. They've looked at the records for St. Paul's Cathedral. Tom has a PhD in history. So six people took communion. And, but God was preparing people, men and women, who would transform the country. 
What no one could see was that God was preparing an inheritance that was unperishable, unfading, unimaginable, and that in 50 years' time, the country would be radically transformed. Slavery would have been abolished by evangelical Christians. My point is this. Suffering blinds us to anything but itself. It causes us to forget what God has done in the past, to miss what he's doing now, and to lose hope for the future. Because you just feel really sad. We need to challenge that thinking. Even while we uh, experience grief or doubt or despair or pain, God is working on our behalf. Even while you can't see it, God is working. But I want to say directly now, if you are someone who is suffering this morning, God is working on your behalf right now. I'm literally bashing the Bible. (laughs) I'm not saying you should be able to see it. I'm telling you it's true, and it doesn't matter whether you can see it or not. And if I sound firm, it's because I've had to be firm with myself. Really, it doesn't matter whether you can see it. It is true. It doesn't matter whether all you can think about is the thorn in your flipping finger, your father is preparing to take it out. He's preparing a deliverance, a healing, even when we can't see it. That salvation might wait for the final day when we meet Christ. It might not come right now. You know, Abby's thorn didn't come when she wanted it. Couldn't get taken out when she wanted it. I didn't have any tweezers. We sat in Garson's farm. She had to learn how to live and eat her cake with her finger in her agony. How can you cope? So I sent her a blessing along the way, cheese and onion crisps. But I didn't solve the suffering until today. That salvation might wait for the final day when we meet Christ, but it is real and God is doing it all the time and it doesn't matter that you can't see it. He's doing it anyway. Finally, Peter challenges them to rethink suffering. Now, I've left this, left this till last and it's the one that I'm going to spend least time on because it's the most easily misunderstood. But I want to say, as you start to lift your eyes away from, as one starts to lift one's eyes away from oneself, and as we start to see that actually what God is doing depends upon God and not on me, and whether I can see it, and it's true whether I can see it or not, we start to be able to see that actually God can take suffering and make something good from it. Even suffering can be turned to good by God. It's not to say that God desires suffering. That's not what he wants. But when we suffer, he can use it for good. We have to rethink suffering. We live in an age which is determined to avoid pain at all costs. Pain is the one thing we cannot stomach the idea of. We panic about it. Now, that's not to minimise anybody's pain. But it is simply to recognise that the West is, is phobic of suffering. We are so comfortable that we fear it, as if nothing good ever came from it. And actually what Peter wants to say is that God uses suffering to produce something so much more precious than gold. It's not the gold standard, it's better than the gold standard. When we come to God in the midst of them, it's not that pain and suffering is good in itself. Rather, God brings good from it. As we learn to struggle with the circumstances, 
with others, with their petty bitterness, even with God himself. And by God's grace to prevail, our faith becomes something new and more precious than gold. In fact, Peter says, even as gold is refined, even as it's transformed by meeting fire, that's how it becomes beautiful. It meets fire. Even so, your faith is becoming refined in the fire. I'm not saying you ought to be able to see that. And if you're going through suffering right now, if you're in pain or in fear or suffering with doubt, I'm not trying to bash you on the head and say, just remember it's all great. It's not great. It really hurts. What I am saying is it will produce something great if you walk it with, through it with God. Why is it more precious than gold? Well, gold comes and goes. Gold will one day fail, but the thing that your faith is purchasing will never fail. It's eternal. It's, more, it's precious for us now as well as being eternal because it's a source of hope and life that extends beyond our present circumstances. It's precious for others. You think about that? Your suffering produces something of more worth than gold for your friends. Why? Because they're going to suffer and when they suffer, they need to know that there is a man, Jesus Christ, who can lead them through it. And so as you suffer and go through it with Jesus, they look and they see, well, I'm in pain and I need someone who can lead me through it. And they find the salvation of their souls in Jesus Christ. Because of you. Because of what God has done in you. Because as you are suffering with depression or with anxiety or with a, a sick relative or, or with fear and you learn to walk through it with Jesus, then others will come up to you and say, I'm really suffering with depression or anxiety or fear. How do I walk? And you could say, well, I don't know, but let me meet, show you someone who does. This man does. It's precious because it brings glory and praise and honor to God. Simply walking through the valley, simply carrying on faithfulness in your life is worship. It is worship. You might think, well, I'm not doing anything for God because I'm crippled by my circumstances. Yes, you are. Your life and your walk and your love for him in the midst of it is worship. It produces praise and honor to the glory of Jesus Christ. My time has hit zero, so we're going to finish. As we do, I just want to offer four reflections for how to respond. Each one of us has to work out how to respond for ourselves. I don't know your life. I don't know your personality. But... Do you want to say, how do you walk through suffering? How do you lift your eyes? Well, first of all, read and ponder scripture even when you don't feel like it. Right? It's not rocket science. Read the Gospels because they contain the words of Jesus Christ and the Bible is the breathed word of God. Read the New Testament. Read the Old Testament if you want. But I would specifically say, read the New Testament, read the Gospels, even when you don't feel like it. Praise, give thanks and worship even when it is through gritted teeth. How can I do that, Phil? Well, I'm glad you asked me, Phil. Buy yourself a notebook from Wilkinson's. They're like 20p or something. Buy yourself a pen from Wilkinson's. Or take one from the back of church. And every day, write down 10 things or 5 things you're grateful for, you're thankful for in your life. And then you say, Father, I want to thank you for number one, coffee. Now, I'm not joking. I've got my notebook here, right? There are pages you're not allowed to look at. There are Thanksgiving pages. Literally, the first thing I say is coffee. I'm really grateful for coffee. I'm really grateful for fountain pens. Right? They are great. I really like writing with them. 
Right? I'm really thankful for my wife because she's taking the kids to school because I couldn't get out of bed today. Worship. Praise be to the Lord and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Meet with others. Be open and honest. Then laugh, cry, reassure and worship together. Jesus took his friends with him in Gethsemane and said to them, I'm so sad, I think I could die. Can you just sit with me? I'm not, I'm not asking you to do anything. I just want someone to sit with me. You know, join a life group. Pray and comfort those outside the church when they suffer. Don't be afraid to pray with people. This is really for those who are not themselves, who are, who are in a place where they can do that. But 90% of people, if they're going through a really hard time, and you sit with them and you say, tell me all about it, and you say, look, can we pray together? They'll say, oh, thank you. Yeah. You know someone who can help. When we suffer and face hard times, we can have hope by remembering that God is in control, that he's working even when we can't see it, and that he can bring about good even from our worst experiences.